Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from um, the EP section here at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm Osama Wazni. I'm the section head, and today I'm joined by Dr. Pasquale Santangeli, our director for the VT Center. Welcome, Pasquale. Thank you very much. So today we're going to talk about a very interesting topic, uh, which is uh, management of ventricular tachycardia in both non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and ischemic cardiomyopathy. Let's start with the difficult one first, which is non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. So Pasquale, tell us about your approach to ventricular tachycardia in a patient who has non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. Right. So uh, it's a great question. Uh, just in brief, um, the most important aspect, I think, is to understand um, the location of the substrate, essentially, what we're dealing with. So really, imaging um, comes into play here. Very important is a very, very important aspect of it because really you can characterize the type of substrate, the dilation of the heart, and the location of the uh, scar, essentially, with late announcement and so forth. And typically, they tend to fall into two big categories, either the septal and anterior, we call the anteroseptal distribution, or the free wall in the left ventricle or right ventricle, and they have a lot of implications because if it is, for example, on the free wall, so not on the septum, tends to be epicardial more than endocardial. So we do know upfront that we will need most likely to have an epicardial as well as an endocardial procedure. If it is septal, which is essentially mid-wall on the septum, we know that epicardial access really doesn't have a lot of room there because there is coronary vessels and fat. And typically, we just approach them from the endocardium with uh, typically radiofrequency, ablation sequentially from the right side and left side of the septum. And when they fail, we use some form of bailout strategies, which we, we may talk about it later. Yeah. So when I started, I said the more difficult one. So yeah. could you tell us why ablation of, non uh, of VT in non-ischemic cardiomyopathy right. is actually more difficult? Yeah, the, uh, the most uh, uh, difficult aspect of it is that some of the areas that are responsible for VT, some of the substrate, we, is not accessible to us because we with our mapping catheters, it's just like a space rover. We just can touch the surface and we have to imagine what's happening underneath the surface mm -hmm. in the mid-myocardial space. Uh, and this is true from the endocardium and epicardium. So whenever you have an intramural sub, uh, substrate, for us, it's all about guessing where the scar would be or where the critical aspects of the VT will be. That's the challenging part. Now, assuming that we find where it's coming from, then there is a limitation of our ablation tools mm -hmm. because radio frequency can only penetrate up to about five millimeters on average, and uh, and sometimes we cannot reach these areas of interest. Yeah. Now, in, in the beginning, you said imaging is very important, and I would like to emphasize that we've actually made big strides in imaging with our imaging uh, colleagues, and now we're to the point where we can use MRI imaging even in patients who have devices to characterize you know, the substrate. So any comments on that and how far have we gone and how much more do we have to go before we can, you know, really um, use those imaging techniques to the best uh, abilities? Yes. So as part of our protocols here, essentially, whenever we have a patient with any cardiomyopathy going for the fibrillator, uh, we always do imaging before getting the device because the images are perfect but, at that point. Yeah. But assuming that most patients already have devices, as you said, uh, we, uh, the uh, sequences have been improving over the years and now to a point that we can actually see uh, most of the areas of interest essentially with MRI. And we've done studies now on thousands of patients demonstrating safety of uh, MRI scanners, even in patients with technically non-conditional devices. So we can do that. And we have a system into place 
uh, that, that, that can allow that. I think, I think yeah. you're routinely doing this right yes, now. Yes, we do that routinely. And we're using some software to help guide us to where we need to yeah. be. Essentially, yes. Once we have the images, then we reconstruct a 3D model uh, of, the, of the heart, essentially, where the scar and the distribution, so we can integrate that with our mapping system to facilitate uh, the procedure. And by doing that, the procedural times have gone down about 50%. Essentially, most procedures can be done between three and four hours for these cases. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and some patients, even most patients go home the next day. A uh, select group of patients have gone also home the same day when the procedure is particularly short. So it's completely changed. So this yeah. also applies to the patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy. So let's sure. switch now a little bit uh, to ischemic cardiomyopathy and the differences between somebody who has had now an MI versus non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. Yes. The biggest difference is that with ischemic cardiomyopathy, there is no guessing. We know where the substrate is located. All it takes is an echocardiogram. We see the wall thinning, the area of akinesis. There is, no, of course, no contracting. So we already know what it is. And we also know that it's typically um, very it's a very thin area, so we can access it from the endocardium, typically, from the inside of the heart. So by doing that, uh, we understand where the substrate is located. We know how to target it, but mostly being very superficial, we are very successful at ablating it. Mm -hmm. uh, and with radio frequency, we're very successful to up to 70, 80% with a single procedure. And most patients can come off medications that can be potentially toxic, like amiodarone, for example. So there are three more things I want to yeah. talk about. First of all is when radio frequency fails, how can we reach those difficult areas yeah. and how do we deal with that? The second one I want to talk about is in a patient who is unstable, how do we manage that? And the third one are the outcomes. So let's start with the first one. So in the procedure, we're using radio frequency, and this one is probably more so in the non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. And, uh, you know, we can't terminate the, the VT or the PVC. So are there anything, is there anything now that we're using that can help us with that? Yes, so we, um, we have different types of bailout strategies, we call it, that we've been implementing here at Cleveland Clinic. In fact, two-thirds of patients we reviewed that recently, they come here, they come here because already failed radiofrequency ablation mm -hmm. somewhere else. So we're already ready for these type of bailout strategies. Most of the times the problem is, is that the ablation energy is not able to penetrate deep enough, so more than five millimeters. The way we approach that, we have different techniques. Typically, we try to cannulate uh, microvessels, essentially from the venous system and occasionally also from the arterial system, but mostly from the venous system. So we can, that, that, that is feeding that area, essentially, mm -hmm. that is, uh, uh, close to that intramural scar, we can inject alcohol uh, through that. And we, we use different techniques to do that, which has been very successful. We also equipped to do so-called bipolar ablation. So bipolar ablation means essentially ablation from both sides of an area, essentially, to reach the center of it. There is a special, um, um, there are special tools to do that, and we also have a very good experience with it. And whenever we cannot reach because of the extensive, uh, extension of the substrate, it's very extensive, or if the patient is so sick, there is so much advanced heart failure, we cannot really take them to the lab, we also now can provide radio ablation, which is a non-invasive way of ablating the tissue, just similar to what we do with cancer, essentially, with gamma knife. So we uh, reconstruct what we mapped during the first procedure, we know what the target is, and we do radiation therapy. Uh, non-invasively, essentially, to target the data. So we have options for, uh, essentially, the wide range of patients that fail radiofrequency ablation. Perfect. And now, moving on to the patient who is unstable, and this is, brings us to our collaboration with our heart failure specialists and our surgeons. 
So first of all, with the heart failure uh, specialist to optimize the patient and then the surgeon to give us some backup hemodynamic support, but also sometimes to give us access to an area that we want to ablate. So could you comment on both these aspects? I think this is crucial. So most patients that come at least to see me because of ventricular tachycardia and heart failure, I always uh, uh, recommend to establish heart failure care with us because we did look at this years ago and we, we realized that even if we do eliminate ventricular tachycardia, within five years, patients end up having advanced heart failure and need some form of other therapy. It can be interventional therapy, like for example, sometimes valve correction and valve therapies or surgery or even LBED or transplant. So it's very important that you stay within the same system so we can follow them longitudinally with that. And uh, so before the procedure, uh, typically we stratify patients with a risk score that we uh, essentially, we developed and validated externally. So we know exactly what type of pathway we will follow. Mm -hmm. For patients that have advanced heart failure with very low ejection fraction, uh, NVT, typically this triggers also a consult with heart failure. So we can come up with a decision on how to optimize the patients before the procedure and whether we should use some additional strategies like mechanical hemodynamic support, like for example, uh, an LVAD like Impella, which is percutaneous and temporary, or even ECMO very rarely. But doing this in a very uh, stepwise and structured way, we had very good outcomes, even in the sickest patient population. Very good. And then, uh, and then there are so, uh, certain instances where we actually ask the surgeons to give us access to an area so we can map it well, especially in somebody who's had previous surgery and we need to go to the surface of the, of the, of the ventricle. And then finally, I want to talk about uh, our outcomes. I think we have made, you know, very big strides. You, you talked, you know, briefly about how now we have, you know, uh, shortened the procedure time, which is very important because the shorter the time spent in a procedure under general anesthesia, the better the outcomes uh, with respect to po potential complications. Can you elaborate more on the success and also um, you know, our outcomes with respect to potential complications in these patients. Yes, so absolute priority for uh, ventricular arrhythmia ablation, but for everything we do in EP is to minimize complications. Ideally, we want to get to 0% and for maybe at some point we'll get to that point, but we're close. And, and I think uh, it's crucial because we realize that uh, uh, every time there is a complication, uh, even if you manage to treat the VT successfully, then the long-term outcomes are worse than patients that had, didn't have a complication. Mm -hmm. So for us, the first priority is to minimize, eliminate. Also, as we have some techniques to do that, we implemented, for example, vascular access with ultrasound constant, consistently. We minimize the um, number of uh, uh, access sites, for example. We just use typically venous access now and not arterial access for most patients. Uh, we have better and faster mapping ways and mapping tools so we can get our mapping done within an hour roughly so we can spend the rest of the procedure to uh, target the ablation uh, part, which is the most important aspect. And typically in three or four hours, uh, most procedure can be actually successfully done uh, and patients do fairly well with it. So, yeah. Very good. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to report that our success rates, like we discussed in ischemic cardiomyopathy, are 70 to 80 yeah. percent with uh, no recurrence at least uh, at one year. Most of our patients, we can de-escalate their antiarrhythmic drugs. Our uh, complication rate is now below 5%, which is, you know, um, something that, uh, to be really proud of. And thank you for your efforts with this, because the national average is more than 7%. And ours now is, uh, has dropped to less than 5%. I think even with more effort, we can drop it even lower. 
So um, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Pasquale, for being here. Thank you for leading our efforts uh, in VT ablation and uh, VT management uh, in general. And uh, we hope to see you in another podcast from EP at the Cleveland Clinic. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at clevelandclinic.org slash cardiac consult podcast.